good morning. Um, turning your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We are back in the epistle, the letter by Paul. And I'll give you a five-second recap while you turn there. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. I've been spending quite a bit of time in Ephesians uh, for those first three chapters especially, digging into the person and work of Jesus Christ from uh, the beginning of, of eternity, seen in its full manifestation and full glory in the redemption of sinners. And as we came upon this little curve, uh, starting in chapter 4, which is where we're continuing on in chapter 5, what we're seeing is the outpouring or the manifestation of what it means to be saved. If this is true about God and true about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and if this is really what he has done and we are the beneficiaries of that, here is what it looks like to live accordingly. And so we are right in the middle of that, what it means to be a part of a covenant community, that thing that we call a church, the the family of God. And so we're going to start chapter 5 together, and we're just going to take it real slow. Let's just read verse 1, and then we'll pray. Paul says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we this morning sit under the authority of your holy word, which was spoken by prophets and apostles as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, we ask, Lord, that you would enable us to obey your word today, to be transformed by the words that were spoken, and not just to obey what you say, but to desire what you say, to believe that your word is like the bread of life that we, we could satiate our souls on. Lord, we want to desire your word, and we want to enjoy it. As you would speak through the Apostle Paul elsewhere, it's you who works in our hearts to will and to work for your good pleasure. And so we ask that you would create a desire in our hearts for more of you. That we'd feast our souls on the very words that you have spoken, knowing that everything that you say is so good. And we collectively as a church in three locations confess together joyfully that we need a word from the Lord. Our life depends on the word of the Lord. So breathe life into your church today, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Therefore, be imitators of God. You know, for someone as controversial as Paul... And someone as confrontational as Paul, this line seems to be fairly mellow and agreeable compared to stuff that Paul usually says. Meaning that you can say something like this, be imitators of God. You know, do what God does. Copy God, mimic God, follow after God, do the things that he says. You can get away with saying that in just about any culture and any frame of time. You could say it just about anywhere and find a whole lot of support for it. For who in the world doesn't want to copy God? 
Who in the world, even if they don't agree with Christian tenets and Christian doctrines, even if they uh, are not believers, who in their right mind wouldn't want to at least follow some of the moralistic commands and habits that we find in God? Of course, there are a few exceptions to that, but generally speaking, you could go just about anywhere and find people that would find that quite agreeable. Imitate God. You don't even have to be a Christian to say something like that. You can simply go into a bookstore, down the self-help aisle, and find books all about being just like God. Whether he's outside of you or within you, as some of them would say. And so what Paul says isn't necessarily, at least in that first half of his sentence, isn't necessarily by its nature specifically Christian. In fact, in his own time, with, the, with his contemporaries, people would have said this long before Paul. In fact, you can read all throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament and not see a single phrase that looks like that. Nowhere in the Bible, outside of this verse, does it say, be imitators of God. Paul, in some places, say, be, says, be, be imitators of me. He also says, be imitators of Christ. In another place, we're told to imitate one another as the body of Christ. Nowhere in the Bible do you see it said, except for here, be imitators of God. But as Paul was speaking this to the Ephesian church, he would have been speaking it in a context in which his contemporaries, the Greeks and the Romans, would have been quite familiar with the statement. They would have said this to each other over and over. In fact, long before Paul, even before Jesus, people were saying to one another things along these lines. Imitate God. In fact, Philo, being one of them, once uh, was quoted as saying, what greater good can there be than to imitate God? So in Greco-Roman culture, in which Paul would have been very familiar, there was this value of imitation. This sense of wanting to copy somebody who is in one way or another better than you were. To set someone up as a role model that you were going to imitate. This was seen as valuable because at the heart of everyone's desire, or just about everyone, I don't want to throw out a sweeping generalization, but for most people, we have a deep-seated desire to be better than we are now. To get better than we are now. To live better than we are now. And in his contemporary society, in that day and age, the way to do it was to imitate God. To go beyond ourselves in order to transcend our present situation. But here's the problem with that. You can't make a role model out of somebody that you don't know or trust. Now, you can do what they tell you to do. That's no problem. You can obey the things that someone tells you, even though you have no respect for them. We do this all the time. Have you ever had a job, or have you ever been employed by someone that you had absolutely no respect for? Have you ever worked at a job that you completely hated with coworkers, or an employer that you completely just did, you just, just, could not get along with, that you had no respect for, that maybe you even despised, and yet you did what they told you to do, right? Maybe to a certain point. Why? It wasn't out of this sense of motivation to be like them. You weren't motivated to be just like them, like they were this uh, incredible role model. It was more out of a sense of self-preservation, usually. 
Because if you don't do what your boss tells you to do, you lose your job. If you do do what your boss tells you to do, perhaps it's for an ulterior motive, maybe to get on their good side. Or maybe you're, you're seeking that promotion, or maybe you just want some words of affirmation in front of your other coworkers, or maybe you want to know that there's a point to what you're doing from 9 o'clock to 5 in the afternoon. Or maybe you want a pay raise, whatever. But in some of these situations, maybe not all of them, but in a situation where you have absolutely no respect for them, but you do what they say, it's often for a sense of self-preservation. In other words, you're essentially got to perform well in order to be well. So this is no strange thing for many of us. We do this frequently, at least I do. But some of us have carried this into our approach of Christianity as well. Some of us treat God the same way. We kind of have an idea that he's a good person, at least in, in word. We don't know it experientially, maybe. We've never even seen him. He's like that boss that hides in his cubicle. We hear his voice. We get his commands. But we have no idea who he is. So we do what he tells us to do so that we're not fired from our job. Or we do it to get on his good side. Or we do it to gain a sense of righteousness or to uh, not be, uh, well, for lack of a better word, not to be doomed. We rearrange our entire Christian life, our entire religious life around this thought that our God is this angry employer who's going to can us if we don't do exactly what he says. Perhaps some of you have been doing that for far too long and you find yourself wondering after hearing over and over about the gospel and good news, where's the good news in all of this? Because this sounds more like bad news. My deepest desire, my deepest longing is for things to not be the way they are now. I live in a broken world, in a broken society, in broken relationships. I can't even get my life back together, and I want a sense of hope, and yet I am left without any power to change. How is me trying harder and yet failing miserably day in and day out good news? And that's where Paul steps in in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul begins to scratch where people are itching. But then he takes it a step farther. In other words, he would say, yeah, be imitators of God. Obey God. Do what he says. Follow his commands. Do the things that he does. Do the things that he says. And at this point, every Greek and every Roman in the building listening would have been like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. We've got that written down in Philo, man. We don't need you, Paul. But he doesn't stop there. He says, be imitators of God. As dearly loved children. Whoa. What? Wait. What? In other words, Paul gives the same view that everyone else would have had, the same view that we have thousands of years later, and he gives it a particular Christian angle saying, yes, you should be like God. You should pursue holiness. You should do the things that God says. You should walk in righteousness. You should do exactly what the will of God is as Christian children of God. In other words, your ability to do what God says and your ability to imitate God does not come from the principle of reason as the Greeks would have thought. 
And it doesn't come from an ascent to authority or power as Rome would have thought. And it doesn't come from hedonism as some of us would think. And it doesn't come from comfort. And it doesn't come from trying harder. And it doesn't come from pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. It comes from the power to imitate God comes from the fact that you are a loved child of God. And he switches the paradigm. He says it actually has nothing to do with what you merited and nothing to do with what you attained. It comes from something outside of yourself that has been given to you. Now, are we called to be holy? Yes. Are we called to listen to God's commands and obey them? Yes. Paul said the law is holy. It is actually a good thing. The problem is that we are the bad thing, and the law points to that. And so the law tells us to love God, as Jesus would say. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And we see that right there. Be imitators of God. Love him. Love others. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with Chris Lazo. Because I don't love God like I'm supposed to. I raise my hands on Sunday morning and on Monday I get mad at somebody on Highway 101. I show up in my community group and I I say all of these spiritual things and then on Tuesday afternoon I hold a grudge in my heart. And the list goes on. I don't love God as I should and I don't love people as I should. I break the law. I'm a lawbreaker as all people are. All people have broken the law and the law tells us to love God but the gospel tells us that we are loved by God. Do you see where the good news is? The good news is not primarily what you have done for God. The gospel is primarily what God has done for you. The gospel is not primarily how much you love God. The, God is primi- the gospel is primarily how much God has loved you in your lack of love. And that changes something. Right? That changes the human motivation. That changes why we wake up in the morning. That changes why we show up at church on Sunday morning. That changes how we approach marriage. That changes how we approach relationships. That even changes how you approach your angry boss. Our motivation for imitating God is that he is a loving father. And that would have been absolutely foreign to the Greeks, to the Romans, and perhaps to many of you this morning. As the audience would have been listening to Paul, as his letter would have been read, they would have been looking for something to do. And instead, Paul says, imitate God. And then he shows them a family. Knowing that you're a part of a a family has profound implications for how you behave. Depending on what family, I guess. When I was younger, I had this big respect and honor for my dad. From a young age, I just wanted to be him. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to do the things that he did. I wanted to copy him. I wanted to imitate him. I wanted to follow along in his footsteps. And anything that he did, I would just start to do. I didn't even try. I would just start to do. It was just natural for a little kid to want to be like his dad. I also had this fascination with ninjas. 
I think all my friends, it was like the mid-90s, all of, all of my friends had this obsession with ninjas. And one day, those two things collided when my dad pulled me aside one day. And I don't know if he was just playing or he just wanted me to smile bigger. He pulled me aside and he said, hey, son, come here. Guess what? I said, what, dad? I'm a ninja. My eyes got so big. I must have been like 10 years old. I don't know how old I was, but I was young enough to believe that my dad was a ninja because he told me. And that changed everything about me. I began to gossip about my dad at school. I would tell my friends and my classmates, my dad's a ninja. When we would have those conversations, my dad could beat up your dad. I would respond, you can't, your dad can't even see my dad. He's invisible. I would daydream that my dad was off helping people because I thought that's what ninjas did at the time. He was saving people's lives. A couple nights in the middle of the night, me and my next door neighbor, my buddy, would break out of, we would escape our house late at night and we would wrap our heads in black cloth and run around town skipping from roof to roof, throwing water balloons at strangers passing by at two in the morning. I don't know where all of this stuff came into my head, but I wanted to be like my dad, and that's probably what he did as a ninja. (laughs) I got into a lot of trouble. We we lived in a, a, a broken neighborhood. There was one time where we were hiding behind my dad's truck in the middle of the night, and I threw some oranges dressed in ninja attire at a guy who didn't like that. He pulled out something and began to chase me down the alleyway. I would do silly things like that because I wanted to be like my dad. One day, my dad pulled me aside and he said, Chris, stand still, I'm gonna show you a trick. So I did, he said, I'm gonna kick that baseball hat right off your head. (laughs) So I got all straightened up, I looked around, all my friends were watching, all my family members were there, we were eating. I got all straight and I said, okay dad, do it, yeah! And he backed up and he winded his leg up and he just let it rip and he knocked my hat straight off my, my head. But he, he overshot a little bit and his foot caught me in the nose. And because I was a little kid, I got knocked all the way back on the ground and fell on my back and got up and my face was just bloody and messed up and he was sorry and he bought me an ice cream cone and We've been laughing about it ever since, but needless to say, that was the last time I thought my dad was a ninja. (laughs) But even though that dream was shattered, I, (laughs) I didn't stop wanting to be like him. So whatever the next thing was, that's what I wanted to do. And the funny thing about it, as I look upon those days in retrospect, is that I never, like, I never, I never tried to imitate him, you know? It wasn't like Monday morning I was writing down in my, my moleskin, like, okay, my dad does this, I'm going to do that. My dad does this, I'm going to do that. I just turned out like him. I spent all this time with my dad, and I turned out like him. And it was, it was, it was the best thing ever. It was good. The good things about him and his flaws, all of those things I subsumed into who I became as I grew older. I didn't, tr- I didn't even try to copy him. I just became 
like him. It was a natural thing. There's something beautiful about the redemption of sinners that some of us never quite get ourselves to, that we would behoove us this morning to consider. That God does not just forgive the sins of those who have wronged him. He brings them into a family. Some of you think, well, yeah, I'm justified and my sins have been forgiven. But God is being no longer angry with me, wants me to hide in the corner so I don't break anything. So yeah, I'm forgiven. He's not mad at me anymore, but he wants me to just stay out of the way while he does stuff. That's not true. The testimony of the New Testament says that the the Christian who has been saved by grace and faith in Christ does not just have their sins taken away, but they are adopted into a heavenly family. And that does something to you. In fact, the word that Paul uses when he says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. The word for love that he uses uh, was a typical word in classical times that usually referred to children, but particularly referred to an only child. That one child that a a group of, a, a, a parent would have that they would devote all of their love to. It was a fiery, jealous, devoted love being showered upon one individual. It's the same type of love that Paul is speaking about, the children of God. He loves you like a father loves his only child. So we're not just forgiven, we're adopted. It's an old British Pentecostal scholar named Harold Horton who puts it better than I, I can, so I'm just going to quote him. It says, The redeemed of the Lord are not only saved unto, unto everlasting life, they are the children of God. When we say we are the children of God and that God is our Father, we're not merely employing terms of inspiration or endearment. When we say that God is our Father, we are using terms of absolute relationship. Our divine parentage is as real as, but infinitely more enduring than our human parentage. In other words, God isn't your boss. Y'all hearing that this morning? God isn't your taskmaster. God isn't your angry, angry uncle that just, just wants to beat you over the head when you screw up. God is your loving, heavenly Father, and that changes somebody. God is a Father, and Christians, therefore, according to the Apostle Paul, are called to relate to Him as a Father. The problem with that, some of you already know, is that not all of us have fathers like God. Some of you in this church have fathers that weren't there for you. Some of you, your fathers abandoned you at an early age. You don't even know what it's like to have a father. Some of you, maybe your dad was there your entire life physically, but your dad wasn't there emotionally. For some of you, maybe you were abused. Maybe you were abused by your father. Emotionally, spiritually, physically. Sexually, 
And for some of you, there is this deep-seated pain in your heart, so much so that you can't even read the scriptures, anything about it that depicts the, that God is a father because you read into it all the pain and all the baggage that you have carried into it from your life with a dad who was never there for you or who hurt you or abused you or abandoned you. Perhaps you can't even help but project hate and animosity towards everything that you read about the Christian God because of that. And my friend, to you, I just want to say I am so, so sorry. Without trying to sound patronizing, my heart breaks for you because the testimony of Scripture is that earthly fathers have a design. That earthly fathers are supposed to give us a glimpse of our heavenly father. That marriage is supposed to give us a glimpse of a relationship between us and God. That relationships in and of themselves are supposed to point our eyes towards a better relationship. And for every area in which we failed in that, we failed to depict God in all of his glory and all of his beauty. And who in this room has not failed to depict God in all of his glory and in all of his beauty? I have. Yet the beauty and the gospel of God is that even in our mistakes, even in our horrific mistakes, God is not like us. And so I can say to you, to those of you who have been hurt badly, by those who have, should have been there for you. And God is not like your dad. And he's not like me and he's not like you. God loves you and he proves it. As many of us know, by sending his only begotten son that we might know eternal life. And all of the apostles testify to this. Peter would say, Christ suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. Your heavenly father gave his prized possession to bring you close to him. Paul would say to the Roman church, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That means by virtue of Christ's finished work, God ain't mad at you. Jesus, and arguably one of the most beautiful prayers that has ever been spoken in John chapter 17, would pray to God about those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. He would say this, I am in them and you are in me, Father. May they be made completely one so the world may know you have sent me. And listen to this. And you have loved them even as you have loved me. So not only is God not mad at you, Christian, but he loves you with the same love that he crowns his begotten son with. That does something to a person. And Paul would say to the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1, we are called to imitate God from that identity. 
That when he says, therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, he is calling men and women of God to not just pull themselves up by their bootstraps or try harder or be better out of a sense of self-preservation or out of a sense of trying to be better Christians or out of a sense of trying to appease this supposed angry God. He is saying, I want you to work out of that identity that you are children of a God who loves you and gave his son for you and out of that will overflow righteousness and holiness at all. Look, yeah, amen. Look how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, John said. And you'll find that love motivates the most stubborn heart. I don't mean love as our culture knows it. I mean self-sacrificial love poured out on us by the Father. Love motivates the hardest soul and the most stalwart disposition. It can take the most radically religious person, the person who's in it just to make themselves feel better about themselves. It can take the most radically religious person and break their heart. Because for the first time in their life, they want to do what God says not to impress him, but because they genuinely want to be like him. And you will find that you don't have to write stuff down. You don't have to put it in your notes. You don't have to force yourself to be like God. You want to be like him because he's everything you've ever wanted to be. And this, strangely enough, is the sanctification process that Christians are called to. It's part of it. And we know some of those things. In order to be like God, we need to read our Bibles. We need to pray every day. We need to uh, be uh, in a part of a, a community, the church of God. There are many things, but all of them have at its core a desire for God himself. That is the core of your growth and imitation of God. That is the core of your being stripped away from the sin of this life. That is the core of your redemption. I want more of God. You know what the Apostle John would say right after that verse I read? Look at how great a love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. He would say in 1 John 3, verse 2 and 3, Dear friends, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet been revealed. You know what he's saying? He's just giving you, he's just teasing you right there. He's saying, you're God's children right now, but it's going to be so good, and I can't even tell you how good it's going to be. You're just going to have to wait. He doesn't even give you a trailer. He just says, oh man, it's just going to be. (laughs) Why is it so good? Look at what he says in the next line. We know that when he appears, right? And this is our hope, is the appearing of God. The appearing of Jesus Christ. When he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. John is saying, okay, I'm going to put it in terms, I'm going to put it in mathematical terms because I'm so good at math. (laughs) My professor back in the day used to teach us about this asymptote line, this curvy shaped line that was always 
trying to get closer to zero, closer to the graph, but as close as it would get, even for infinity, it would never quite hit perfection. It would never quite hit that plane. That is a visual of the Christian life before we die or before God comes again. We can get so close to the Lord and yet just as Paul would say, I think it was to the Philippian church, we attain, we strive to attain for perfection but we know we will not get it in this life yet. And so we get closer and closer and closer and more of God and more of God and more of God and more of God and yet we will not perfectly have all that there is to have of God until he comes himself. And John right here says the moment you are made perfect, the moment you are made glorified, the moment sin is absolutely eradicated from your life, the moment suffering is dealt with, the moment sin is dealt with, the moment death is destroyed forever, the last enemy, the moment you are able to see God in all of his form, in all of his beauty, without any sin trying to filter that beauty from getting to you, the moment every idol is crushed, the moment you simply want him for who he is without any other temptation whatsoever will be the moment he shows you his face without filter without veil and without obstacle and seeing him will change you radically to perfection and so the Christian life is getting more glimpses of that until it happens and that's what John says in the next line everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. A father's love breaks religiosity because suddenly we want to be like him. We don't have to take notes anymore. We just want him. You also find that for those of you who have been dealt wrongly in this life by fathers, your heavenly father's love will begin to heal your pain because it'll change your expectations of what a dad should be. So how in the world are we supposed to imitate God? I guess we could rephrase it by asking ourselves, well, how do we imitate a loving dad? It's actually really simple, right? You just, you just do the things your dad tells you to do. You copy him. You spend time with him. You mimic him. You pattern your entire life around him. You imitate him. And you'll find that even though he says things that you don't want to do, because he's a loving father, you know that he has the best in mind for you. And isn't it so true for some of us who have grown a little older, that back in the day when our dads or our, our moms or our parents told us to do stuff we didn't want to do, we're like, oh, just trying to ruin my fun. <laughs> well, you don't understand what I'm going through. I'm 19. <laughs> you haven't been where I've been. <laughs> And our parents, just so patient most of the time. Just like, whatever. <laughs> You'll see. And maybe it took a few years. Maybe we didn't figure it out until we were 40 or 30 or 50. We could look back in retrospect and be like, even though I didn't want to do that, I can now see that my parents, even if they, did, even if they said it harshly, even if they weren't the best at, at, at what they were doing, they at least, ha they at least had good intentions for me. 
And yet our Heavenly Father has perfect intentions and perfect desires and a perfect plan. Even though we don't understand it. So he'll say things in his word like, I want you to honor sexuality. I don't want you to fornicate. I don't want you to commit adultery. I want you to wait until marriage. I want you to honor marriage. He'll say things like that. And perhaps our, origi- our, our immediate intention is to be like, you don't know what I'm going to do. I just can't wait, or I'm in love, or I just need that, and that's going to be the best thing for me now, and you're just, you're just so disconnected from my life and irrelevant, and I just want to do this right now. But everything that God says isn't from the standpoint of an angry boss who wants to ruin your life. It's from a heavenly father who wants to put your life together. And everything that God says to you and I, even the stuff that we don't even understand, is for your joy. That'll change a person. When he calls us to practice self-control, when Jesus tells us to deny ourselves and to pick up our cross and follow after him, one of the most counterintuitive things that our culture hates because our culture loves to express itself and to enjoy itself and to pour all, uh, all of those self-enjoying, self-gratifying things upon ourselves. And so when Jesus comes along and says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after me, the immediate intention is, What? But everything that God calls us to is for our joy and for his glory. So yes, as Paul would say first, be imitators of God. That means obey God. What does he tell us to do? Well, do what he says. Imitate him. How does Jesus act? How does God act? Well, do that. Be just like him. We want to change. We want to be better off. We want transformation. We want to be better than we used to be. And this all occurs in the sanctification of the Christian who is being conformed to the image of God in Christ. Now, careful. When I say better off, I'm speaking from a Christian worldview. So that doesn't mean you're going to be, being better off from the Christian worldview doesn't mean you're going to be more comfortable if you follow Jesus. Remember, he calls us to deny ourselves. That's very uncomfortable. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have a perfect job or the job you wanted or the family and the kids and the... Uh, spouse that you want. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get that promotion you're hoping for. It doesn't mean you're going to be more wealthy. It doesn't even mean you're going to have less problems if you follow after God. In fact, from the testimony of scripture and all of history, it actually seems that by following God, you'll have more problems in life. Perhaps a little less comfort. What the gospel does promise is that you will have God. And even though he doesn't take you out of the fire all the time, he promises to take you through the fire more like him. And for the Christian who desperately and uh, deeply desires to gain God, that is the best news you've ever heard. It means you get to know God in a deeper way. So yes, obey the law of God and seek to be holy as he is holy and to do what he says to do and do the things that he also does but don't forget Paul's paradigm shift that you are dearly loved children Christian so obey and imitate God but especially learn who your father is because you can't be like someone you barely know God wants you to know And your ultimate calling as a Christian is not to pick yourself up by the bootstraps, 
It's not to be better or try harder or sing louder or do better things. All of those things are great, but your ultimate calling is to know God. If all you do in this life is know God more, you've done it all. Jesus himself said in John chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they might know the Father and his only begotten Son whom he has sent. Find that as you start to know God deeper, your life will change and you will start to be just like him. I want to know the Father better. The best way is to know Jesus in his self-sacrificial love. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of the Father's nature. And the Father is seen most vividly in Jesus Christ who gave himself up for you and I even though we didn't love him and we don't love each other perfectly. That also means for all the dads in the building who have failed at being parents, God loves you and he's gonna make you more like him as well. Redemption is the most beautiful thing that you have ever tasted and God supplies it freely because you are family. Let that change the way that we go into Monday morning. Heavenly Father, if there's anyone here today that has never known God in that way, or maybe just struggles to, I want to ask that the Holy Spirit would begin to reveal him in the way that you speak of. There are men and women in in this church today who have been marred, who have been hurt, who have been abused, who have been abandoned. I pray that you would bring the power of God to heal today. If there has ever in our history been a time where our perception of a loving God has been marred or distorted, I pray that you would restore that to its rightful place. That today as we sing songs, maybe even by faith, maybe it's hard for us to sing them, but we sing them by faith, I ask that Holy Spirit, you would begin to give us hearts to believe. For your word says that God is working in us to work and to will for his good pleasure. And for all of us, maybe even those who have good families and we have good dads and we have all of that good stuff and we know you well, we just pray for more. In fact, we pray that all around for the entire church, all of reality, that we would be a gathering of people who are known for being loved by God. And I pray that that would change us. I pray that the world looking in, not being able to have a sermon, not even being able to have a Bible, not even being able to have a lecture or any of those things, simply by seeing people who have been loved by their Heavenly Father would notice a family that has been radically changed by a true love. And we pray that that would be our mission. That we would be so radically loved and experiencing that love by the Father that it would change the very way that we live. So, Lord, pour the love of the Father abroad into our hearts today that we might drink deeply where we need it. In Jesus' name, amen.